Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Of course, today is that day, right? Super Bowl, we used to call it Super Sunday. As Every year it seems like one of the things I reflect on this day is back in the 90s, uh, when I was your age, some of you, um, it was a bit, there was a big push in churches to have a Super Bowl party. It was like you, were, you felt left out if you didn't. And so I don't know how many of y'all remember that time. It was a pretty big thing in kind of a Western church culture um, to show this game on on big screen and biggest screen you could find in your church, you know, and of course that wasn't streaming so much then. There was a little bit, but you had to like figure out how to get cable hooked up in your church. It was kind of a nightmare every year figuring all that out. But I think the idea was if we could just attract a crowd to the church that normally don't go to church. And there was even a name for that. It was called Attractional Church. Lots of books, hundreds of books written about it. Then that would, that would have an effect of growing um, at least our churches. And, you know, probably, I mean, I've not seen the hard research on that. But don't hear me argue against having crowds come in, into your church to watch a football game. I don't think that's a bad thing, and it's not hard to imagine how the Lord couldn't and wouldn't use that in people's lives. Um, But I think, you know, there's been enough time that's passed, I think, as church, we learned something from those kinds of approaches, and that is, uh, you can figure out how to attract crowds with methods or particular kinds of leadership, or personality, but I think that if we reflect on what kind of fruit did that bear, of course, that's really difficult to measure, right? Unless you can just survey everyone who went to those watch parties in churches. But I think it's fair to say one thing we learned, not just from Super Bowl watch parties, but just the attractional movement um, did not make a significant dent in the soul of our nation or in the lives of many people that we hoped it would. Don't hear me say it did none, because God uses all different kinds of ways and means and conversations and relationships. So again, I'm not knocking it. I just want you to hear that it doesn't do that. And so I think for some of us in that, because that, when that was happening, I was cutting my teeth in, in ministry and learning, and, and our church, which was a, becoming a large church, was really into that. And um, I think that we began to reflect uh, more deeply about some of those ways and means of doing church. And it caused us 
at the end of the day, uh, I, we didn't figure that much out, but one of the things, the effect is it caused us to look at Jesus and ask some questions. How was he with people? How did he attract people to him? Was he against crowds? No, he wasn't. We see him with him some, but we don't see him like making it about that. Seems like he's on a different venture. In, in contemporary terms, Jesus, as far as ministry, he would have been a dismal failure. Uh, three years, and he's got 12 really committed ones. Well, 11. And then there's another, there is another group around that group, maybe 85 or so, um, as best as we can tell. But... Fast forward 2,000 years. What was his effect? He's doing something very differently. And I think it, it caused a lot of us to reflect on that and to want to learn from that. We're starting a new sermon series today. Brian mentioned it. Um, we're calling it The Kingdom Shire. Does it bother you a little bit? You think it's a little bit cheesy? Do you like it? I'll say a little bit more about it in a minute. Last fall, we began a process. We called it Redreaming Church. What we want to redream is a spiritually healthy, missionally focused community. We've been conversing and praying and kind of working towards this for a while. In this series, and there's nothing magical about a sermon series any more than there is about a Super Bowl party, but in this series, we are trying to move into the heart of this quest of redreaming church. I think we're going to be in it for a while. A few years ago, someone accused us of being a community that just wants to live in a shire. It really bothered me at first. As I reflected on it, it made me want to thank them for it. Because I think that's an appropriate there's something appropriate about living in a shire, um, living in a committed way in a community where, when possible, a handshake is better than a contract. When possible, when someone is in need, others rally around and make it up. When people fail and fall like we do, there are steps towards recompense and reconciliation. In a shire, there aren't really celebrities. It's just people sharing in a life together. So I've, I've come to receive that as a compliment. Now there's more we have to say about it. There's taglines to the series. You see them up there. Following Jesus. 
called into community, sent to the world. The taglines are important. They say more. So if Kingdom Shire is a little bit unclear and you don't like it, that's okay. The taglines is where the meat are. The unpacking is what matters. Even behind the title, there's some premises. And I want to I start this series with shining a light on just a couple of the premises. I mean, there's also always premises behind any title because you can't capture meaning in a title or even a tagline. You have to say more. So we're going to start by saying more. Here's an important premise. As Jesus followers, as a Jesus community, we live in a tension. We live in two worlds. We really do. We live in the world of this earth. And this world is extremely beautiful in a lot of ways. What, what brings beauty of this world to you? People are beautiful. Every human being you meet, if you could see them like God sees them, C.S. Lewis used to say you might be tempted to worship them. They're so beautiful and eternal in God's eyes. People are beautiful. There's a beauty to them. Even in their misery and pain. There's a, they never lose that. Nature's beautiful. I don't have to tell you that. You all have your favorite places. Mountains or beach. That's the, like the eternal question. Which one do you choose if you have to choose? I also like Kansas wheat fields. I love them. I love the Flint Hills. I love sunsets. I love big skies. I love being enveloped in woods. You know, I love creeks. Um, my favorite place on the world, world's called the Blue Hole. It's a, it's a swimming hole where I grew up. And we used to climb a tree on the bank of the hole and drop out of the tree. You had a, you had a spot that big, you better hit it because there's rocks in there. I have a lot of stories about that. Didn't always go so well for some. Um, but the world really is beautiful. Children are beautiful. Good food. Um, being together. I mean, there's so much good in the world. Time away, time off. You know, all those things that are gifts. We also live in a world of this earth that is like terribly broken. No news to that, turn on the news and you'll see it. We struggle with corruption throughout the systems that we build. Just give it time. We struggle with broken relationships, even in our own families. Uh, we struggle with disease. Sometimes they become pandemics. We just struggle with invisible, tiny little viruses that kill us and become cancer. We struggle with hurt backs and migraine headaches. 
We struggle with children who don't make good decisions. We struggle with so many things. We struggle with people getting old and cantankerous. We struggle with broken marriages. I don't need to keep going. You are aware of this. We're part of that world. And it could be say, said about each of us, as, about you as an individual. There's beauty and brokenness, right? There's both. There's light and darkness. It's available. It's kind of like which one are we going to lean into and try to live out. But we can't escape that. We live in that world. John, I want to read a scripture out of 1 John, 1 John 5, 19-20 says, We know that we are children of God. That's the beautiful side of this verse. We are living in a good world that a good Father created. And among people whom He created in His image, we know that we are children of God. And then listen to the second part that John writes. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We live in this world that includes dark forces hell-bent on evil. Whether those are manifested in systems of government or institutions or in the pain of abuse or enslavement or white lies we tell our spouse to cover what we did last night. We live in that world that's being influenced. This is stated as a fact as John writes it. And I would submit it is a fact that we cannot change. We are children of God and we know that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We do not have dominion over those evil forces. We cannot and we will not change them. We're not going to subdue them into submission. We may have some victories over them here and there in our lives and as we do community together. But it's a reality. And because it's a reality, there's a sense in we're living in a world that's, that God made and is good, but it's also at the same time not our home. That's why Scripture makes much of we live as strangers and foreigners, as exiles in this world. It's not ours. And we have to make peace with that reality. We can't find that righteousness that we hunger and thirst for fully in our endeavors here. It, it, we experience it, but it also escapes us. These dark forces that are running the world, they will be defeated. That's the biblical message. They will be overcome. It will not be by us. We'll, we'll do battle in the meantime, but they, we will not overcome them. But there is one who will. God will take care of them. That's the end of the story. 
So that's a premise that we live in a world that's broken. Here's another one. We also live in another world. Jesus frequently called this world the kingdom of God. He's, he, he was using like an expansive phrase to communicate the reign or the rule of God. That wherever what God wants is being done, that's His kingdom. Sometimes Jesus would call it the kingdom of the heavens. Literally, you could translate it kingdom of the skies. I don't love that translation. I like heavens better. Because I think it gets at the God-centric part of that. He invited people in it. Jesus didn't say it's out there. He says it's in here. It's available. He came saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You've heard us talk about that a lot. But I want you to understand, that was a truly radical teaching to Jesus' hears. Not that there was a kingdom or that God was there, but that God was here, available within reach. That God was now available in a way that if you were with Him, it wouldn't ruin you. Because God was with them in flesh, in a person. That was radical teaching. That's why it was so upsetting to people among other things. The nature of that kingdom was not like what people imagined. They, they, when they thought kingdom, they thought dominion. Getting control, getting the upper hand. God's going to come and wipe out the enemy and restore us to greatness. It'll be like the good old days and Jesus showed a very different way. He came as a man and He made this kingdom available. And it didn't draw crowds. But Jesus would give a teaching and then He would drop it with this. He who has eyes to see. She who has ears to hear. Let them hear. It was available in that way. So to repeat, as Jesus' people, we live in this Really fascinating tension. Sometimes it feels really complicated. How do I live in two worlds? We live in this beautiful, broken, messed up world. And on the other hand, we live in this other world that Jesus has called us into that has its own culture that brings a life to us. A life of its own that's very counter into the ways of the world. And that's what the taglines are trying to capture. Following Jesus. Called into community. Sent to the world. One, one of the questions that Christians have wrestled with for entire history of our existence is just how much of the kingdom of the heavens is actually available here and now. How much of it do we get now while we're still in this world? Is the correct answer all of it? It's all available? And then it begs the question, well, how do you, if that's true, how do you live in that without escaping this one? And there's Christian groups that have taken that approach. We'll cloister and get away from the world and go live in our own huddled Cloistered, okay, let's use the word shire. You know what happens? 
Just give them time and they'll be messed up too. They'll be fighting. I mean, history has proven that. We can't escape the brokenness. Even as Jesus' people, we have to struggle with it. So if it's all of it, how do we do it without separating ourselves? Or, are you getting discouraged? I hope you're not. Maybe this is like, golly, this is really bad news. Only, maybe the other answer is just a tiny bit of it. You know, you get just enough of the kingdom of heaven to get your heaven ticket punched. So when you get to the train station at the end of your life, you show your ticket, and you come in, and then that'll be perfect. So we shouldn't, in the words of the Bee Gees, expect too much of heaven. You want to hear a little bit of the Bee Gees, Pam? You do. I can tell. You've really... I'm going to play you a little bit of the Bee Gees. I'm going, to, I'm going to play a song. I'm sure this song is not about Jesus. I'm pretty sure it's about a, a girl. Um, but I want you to pay attention to the lyrics. Because in, in these words, you're going to hear a longing if, if you listen carefully. And I think the, I don't have the lyrics displaying, so you have to listen. But I think you can catch them. So let's. Let's listen. One minute video. You'll want more. Brian and Becky, please keep your lighters in your pocket. This is not for that. So, okay, here we go. What'd you hear? I saw. <laughs> what did you hear? What what were the lyrics? Nobody gets too much heaven. Nobody gets too much love. It's harder to come by. Hard to climb. They they, they use the metaphor of climbing to get to it. Anything else you're thinking as you, other than just being enamored with the beauty? What do you think? Is it true we don't get too much heaven? It's a big question. It's an important question. Like I said, I'm not sure they were thinking that deeply. Maybe they... Their soul was, and they didn't realize it. I don't know. But I think the way to get clarity on the question is to go to the source. The one who said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had something to say about it, about the question. Matthew 4.17 is where it is. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent. Change your thinking. The kingdom of heaven has come, what? You know it? Has come, you, you know it. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Has come near. 
And then Jesus spends His ministry teaching, preaching, and modeling what it looks like for the kingdom of heaven to come near. What it was like. What it wasn't like. And then He began inviting people in it. And and speaking of longing, I didn't put this verse on the screen, but this is a familiar one with some of you. In Matthew 11, you you can turn there if you want. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but some of you know this passage. It's Matthew 11, 28-30. You hear what Jesus says. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden, <clears throat> excuse me, is light. Can you hear the longing in Jesus' voice? Come unto me, you who are carrying heavy stuff that's weighing you down, that's tripping you up. Come unto me into my yoke and begin learning from me. And you will discover that my yoke will begin to feel easy and light. Something will get transformed for you. I don't think he's promising anything that your troubles are going to get easier. They're going to go away. That you're not going to get sick and die and have problems. I think he's saying something more. Has that invitation made its way into your life? I'm not asking, have you heard it before? I'm asking, has it, is it making its way into your life? Christ has called us and invited us to share in His life. We are called into living and sharing this life together. But not in a shire that's separate from the world, but one that's sent into the world. Those are the premises behind kingdom shire. Shire is an identity-oriented word. It, it kind of defines something. You, you probably all have images in your mind when you hear the word shire. Maybe it's only... Uh, Sam and Frodo and and Bilbo and those guys. I don't know. We're not used to that word. We don't use it much in our culture. But it conjures thoughts for most of us. Identity is a big deal. Knowing who we are. That's what identity is. When we hear Shire, it's saying something about who a people are. How they're doing their lives. It's fundamental identity. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? If you don't, it's going to be really difficult for you to have like a clear, concise, and compelling way to direct your life for the rest of your days. If you don't have a sense of who you are. It's going to be influenced by things that you don't see coming and 
and maybe out of your control, or maybe influences that you wish you didn't have, but you can't quite shake. Knowing who you are gives a power in your life. Not to be mistake-free, but to make decisions that's kind of an outflow of that identity. People who don't have that identity, it's, not, it's a pretty bumpy road for them. It's not really a happy existence. There's a great German theologian and writer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, was killed by the Nazis at the end of World War II. At one point in his journey, because he was a German pastor that was standing against the Nazi regime, he was one of the few who boldly stood so his friends got him out of Germany, smuggled him out, and he came to America. They thought, this will be a good place for you, Dietrich. You can go get it. He was an academic. You can get a post at a university. There, there's, there's places in New York City waiting for you, university, to see. Well, Bonhoeffer came, and it wasn't really all that life-giving for him, it, with one exception. He stumbled into the black church in America. And he found something there that changed his life. He found a people who were just a few generations away from enslavement. And he saw something in those communities that was compelling for him. He loved their music. That was one thing he loved. But he saw a people who had an identity. In, in, in a way he'd never seen before. Like, the, the, not, not necessarily saying everybody was that way, but he saw a people that like knew who they were. And, the, and they did church and community and life out of that identity. And because of that, his own journey grew to the point where he had, he had no choice but to go back into his homeland and be a part of living out God's call on his life among those people. Do you know who you are? Do we know who we are? What is the basis of that knowledge? What's the basis of your identity? Is it who you know? Is it what you earn? Is it what other people think of you? Is it what you can produce? Is it what your parents or children do? Is it your reputation, what other people think of you? Is it your self-worth, how you feel about you? Those are very common identity makers in our culture. Jesus is offering an identity that will sustain you when life hits the fan for you, like it did in that black church in New York City that Bonhoeffer discovered. That's the gospel. That's what he's offering is life that will sustain you when your life hits the fan. And it does. That's what Jesus preached and taught and died for. Surprisingly, there's a passivity in coming to possess that kind of identity. You, you can't go grab it. You can't go achieve it. 
You can't go make it for yourself. The poetry, the Scriptures, they, they speak. Brian read that. Sometimes I think we all listen to Psalm 23 every Sunday. You know, He makes me lie down in green pastures. And leads me beside still waters. Even in the presence of my enemies, He, he cooks up a feast for me. The poetry of Scripture speak of the lives of individuals who have discovered their identities outside of themselves. In other words, they've received an identity. I want to read just a few examples, and this is just cherry-picked three verses. Psalm 18, the writer says, The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my fortress. He's my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 91 says, if you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High, this is such an interesting identity word, you make the Most High your, you ready? Dwelling. That's identity. No harm, not, no harm will come upon you. No harm will overtake you. It will not have you. No disaster will come near your tent. For He will command His angels concerning you. God has resources of which we cannot see. To guard you in all your ways. And then, here's maybe my favorite. Psalm 73. I heard this from one of you this week. I can't remember now. That's why I chose it. My flesh and my strength may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. That's a received identity. I am strong of heart because of God. He is my portion. My identity is wrapped up in God. You know, that's what we long for. That's what we want for our, our parents and our grandparents. You know, we want them as, as they age and move toward death. We want, we want them to like not be freaked out by it. We understand they, they're still broken. There's going to be some fear and anxiety. But we really want to see them rest. Right? In that identity. We want to hear them say, God is the strength of my heart and my portion. These are identity-shaping confessions. In each of them, the individuality of the person hasn't been lost. They're still who they are. It hasn't been obliterated by God. It's been enhanced. It's been strengthened. They're more of who God made them to be, not less. The strength of their human heart comes into relationship with God's heart. And there's a union there. That's what Bonhoeffer witnessed. That union. And he said, I may be really smart, but I want that. I want that. Jesus makes much of identity. Our identity. The New Testament makes much of our identity individually and collectively. As a church, we have a collective identity. It's a received identity. It's not what we are going to go do that's special or impressive. It's something we receive. It's our identity. There's a passivity to it as a people. We cannot make it, but we can acclimate to it. Or not. That's the challenge. 
So this is going to be a journey for us as a community. We're going to be in this for a while. Discovering what it means not, not to be a cloistered shire that doesn't care about what's going on in the world, but to be a people who have received life from Jesus that are seeking to live out that life together and then are stewarding that life to neighbor to the world as far as Thailand. That's what we want to be about. That's what I want to give my life to. I hope you do too. There's our intro to this sermon. We'll see how the Spirit guides us and takes us as, as we go. I hope you will jump in. And I hope you'll shape it. You have a voice in it. Each of you. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be a part of this. We want to be a part of this received identity as a people and as individuals. We all have our own individual lives that we want to live well. We want to flourish in them. Even though our circumstances or our condition may not be what we thought it would be or what we hoped it would be. Lord, here's the gospel. Is It's for people like that. In other words, people like us to whom you came. Those are the ones you sought out. Those who thought they didn't need it. Never really, they only came to the Super Bowl party. But that was it. Lord, we want to live in this way, in a way that like, helps us to flourish as individuals and then offers that flourishing life in humility to others. Pray this in your good name. Amen.